What is up, friends? Welcome back to the Fit to Live podcast. I am your host, Sydney Tollett, and you are listening to episode 12, 10 FAQs. So today we are going to be going over 10 different frequently asked questions, and these are questions that either I have gotten a lot, um, whether it be through clients who come on board or in my Facebook group or in my um, question boxes that I do on my Instagram story or just in my DMs. And then also, I do see these questions often asked to other people as well, like in their question boxes. Um, So that is where I kind of compile these questions. And I think that you guys are going to get a lot of value out of this episode. There's a lot of different topics within it. So there's some um, regarding calories, some with macros, some with training. So I think this is going to be a really, really good episode. And it's just topics that I think are pretty simple when you really understand it, but I just think it's something where there's so much information out there that people just get really confused. So I hope that this really helps you guys. But before we get into that, I just want to do a shameless plug for some companies that I work with and some ways that you can get some great stuff and also support me in the process. So I do work with First Form and I have a free shipping link for them. I get a lot of my staples from First Form, so like fish oil, which is their full mega vitamin D. I really like their vitamin D because it's a liposomal form and it has K2 in it, which is going to help with the absorption of the vitamin D. And then I also love their whey isolate. So their formula one and their vegan protein. So a lot of my staples I get from first form and then cured nutrition. My code is Sydney and they have a lot of awesome CBD mushrooms and adaptogen products. So I personally really like the raw, um, the raw CBD oil and the Rise supplement, which is more for focus and it's non-stimulant, which I love. And then New Ethics, my code is Sydney as well. And they have just a ton of different functional supplements. And honestly, which one would benefit you will depend on what you personally are dealing with. But it is something that I use in myself and clients for very um, symptom or lab specific things going on. So we'll shout out to all of those companies, but now we are going to get into this episode. So again, we have two questions to go through and have some bullet points written for each of these. So the first question is going to be, should I add back calories burned on my fitness watch? And I literally get this question all the time. So short answer here is no, you should not add back the calories burned. And what this question means for anybody who isn't sure is like, this is somebody who's saying, okay, if I'm tracking my food in my fitness pal or another fitness app and my watch tells me that I burn 400 calories in a workout, should I then add 400 extra calories onto my day? than what I had planned for. So that's kind of what this question is asking. And the answer is no. Um, Reason being here is, so for any goal, let's kind of start here. For any goal, first things first is we're determining how many calories you burn in a day. So your total daily energy expenditure. Um, So this is made up of kind of four different categories. And I've talked about this in a previous episode, so I'm not going to go in depth on this, but we have our BMR, which is just the calories to maintain vital processes. We have our non-exercise activity thermogenesis. So this is calories burned in movement outside of planned activity. So this could be also things like fidgeting or blinking or even just like your facial expressions in general. So it could be um, things that you're conscious of or things that are more like subconscious. So that's going to be our neat. And then 
our PA or physical activity, that's going to be calories burned with planned physical activity. Now, some people will put like walking into this category as well. It really doesn't matter. As long as we're accounting for all four, we're going to be fine. But it, some people kind of argue, oh, is walking like neat or physical activity? But either way, physical activity is calories burned with planned physical activity. So these are for sure going to be things like any workouts that you do, lifting, things like that. And then finally, TEF, which is the thermic effect of food. So the calories to digest and utilize the foods that you eat. But that's just kind of, I want to give you guys this baseline here because before we're, we're setting you up for any goal, whether that be maintenance and recomp, whether that be more of a building goal, a reverse diet, um, a deficit, whatever way we're going, that's the first step is knowing that total daily energy expenditure, which accounts for your physical activity if you didn't miss that. Um, so as you can see, when you determine that total daily energy expenditure, you're already accounting for that physical activity. So is it going to fluctuate a little bit day to day? Yes, absolutely. But our body is really good at adapting for those little fluctuations. Um, and so we don't need to have this like exact number every single day. There's there's absolutely no need for that um, because it's going to fluctuate day by day. But we can kind of get a general sense of what we're maintaining our weight on because we have a little bit of a buffer for our maintenance. Um, so with those little fluctuations, we're still going to be, you know, this is, if we set our TDE, this is kind of what we maintain on, regardless of if it's a little lower, a little higher, some days we're still going to be roughly maintaining there. So it's already accounted for in that. So if we were to add the calories from our exercise back onto that, that would just kind of defeat the whole purpose of calculating that. So for example, if let's say that you're maintaining on around 2,300 calories, so your weight's maintaining when you're around that intake or at that intake at 2,300 calories. And then let's say that you want to go into a deficit. And so you start at like 1,900 calories a day to create that deficit. These are just example numbers, but that's a 400 calorie deficit from your maintenance. And that's all from the food intake in this scenario. So this person, um, their cardio and, and training are just staying steady um, for that initial drop here. So let's say that this person though burned... 400 calories according to their fitness watch during the workout, which by the way, the calorie burn that your watch showed you is not very accurate. Um, so either way though, let's say that they, they did that and then they inputted 400 calories back into their MyFitnessPal to eat because they burned 400 for the workout. Well, you kind of, you basically just close your entire deficit gap because I mentioned, you know, if we were starting at that 2,300 calorie maintenance, we took out 400 and got you to 1,900 well, that's that's your deficit right there. And so if you train, which was already accounted for in your maintenance calories, and then you add back that 400 calories, you just closed your entire deficit gap since your TDE that we were using to determine our deficit already had the exercise accounted into it. So even if you were to say add back oh, well, like what if your, cal uh, your workout said 300 and you added back 300? Well, that's still, you know, 100 calories, quote unquote, deficit. But like I said, our bodies do have a little bit of a buffer range um, of that maintenance. And so that 100 calories at the beginning of a fat loss phase, I can pretty much promise you, you're not going to progress. And if you do, it's not going to be for long before your body adapts to that. Now, 
Um, as you get further into fat loss phases, uh, drops don't usually need to be as big, but especially right at the beginning, 100 calorie deficit, not going to do much. Um, so really the only scenario when I would add calories on top of like a already kind of determined calories is if somebody was training for like an event or a competition and maybe a few days of their week, they have like super intense or super long training sessions, or maybe they have multiple well, on those days, we may add some extra calories to fuel that performance and recovery, but that's really it. And then even if that was happening, that would already be determined, like that would be planned in. So it wouldn't necessarily be, oh, I'm adding back things burned. It'd be more like, oh no, on these days we're burning so much with our activity that we're no longer able to maintain. Like we're in a big deficit that day because we're burning so much with our activity or maybe it's for performance recovery reasons, so then we would add it. But again, it would already be accounted for in their plan, so either way, that could still kind of go back to the whole no to answer this question. So you guys, turn off that setting on your MyFitnessPal. There is a way to go turn it off. Um, I don't remember exactly where it is, but I do know that it, it I think it's only the, um, the premium version that has it, but I believe that the default setting is that it does add it back, which makes absolutely zero sense to me so go turn that off <laughs> um and yeah if you are calculating for your total daily energy expenditure to kind of well and by the way you guys calculators aren't always going to be perfectly accurate because it, it's not accounting for like your metabolic adaptation and stuff but that's for a whole different topic if you're actually knowing your maintenance calories and they're accurate <laughs> and you have all four of those factors i mentioned accounted in physical activity is already a part of it you do not need to add it back so that's that question that one took longer than i thought it was going to but hopefully that helped and if you guys have any questions on that feel free to like shoot me an instagram dm it's just at sydney tallet but hopefully that made sense. So question number two is how do I know if I had a good training session? So this isn't exactly how people typically ask it more. So it's, I burned, I only burned this many calories in my training session. Again, you guys, the watches aren't even that accurate, but either way, people will say, I only burned this many. Like, does that mean it was a bad training session? And absolutely not, you guys. With resistance training, the goal of resistance training is not to burn calories. Um, resistance training actually isn't gonna burn as many calories as people think it is, but there's so many other benefits for just because it doesn't burn that many calories the muscle building and all of the other impacts that we're getting from it and long-term physique like changes over time still definitely what you want to be doing if you want to lose fat but that fat loss isn't coming directly from that workout if you will so point being before i kind of get into how to know if you had a good training session is the definition or the um I'm, i don't know what word i'm looking for the um oh my gosh, what word am I looking for? Determinant. The determining factor of a good training session is not how many calories that you burn. Um, we do not lift weights to burn calories. We are lifting weights to force an adaptation on the muscle tissue and to grow our muscle tissue. So that's what we're training for. We're not training for the calorie burn. So 
a couple of things that we really want to look at when we look at was that a good training session because okay if it's not how much did I sweat and how much did my watch say I burned then what do we look for so a couple of questions that you can ask yourself um, were you able to have good focus in your lift uh, were you able to match or progress from your last last lift as far as like the load that you were using or the weight that you're using or even like Uh, Maybe you could do, maybe you got an extra rep with the same load Um, and all of that though, as far as like, were you able to match or progress your load or reps that would be at the same RPE. Um, If you are not sure what RPE is, that's rate of perceived exertion. Um, Typically RPE is going to be on a scale of one to 10. So how you can, a really easy way to look at this is like reps left in the tank. So if somebody says an RPE seven, um, that would be like three reps until failure. An RPE of 10 would be two failure. RPE eight would be like two reps to failure. So if you have in a certain programmed RPE, say an RPE eight on something and Let's say you go to do that set and you're able to use a heavier load while still maintaining that same RPE. So you you up the load, but you're still only two reps from failure. Like you didn't up the load and it took you closer to failure. You upped it and you're still at the same RPE. That would be a great progression. Um, same thing if you were able to like add a rep with the same load at the same RPE. So were you able to match or progress load and reps at the same RPE? Um, obviously, if you are a beginner, we're probably going to be looking for that progress most of the time, but sometimes the more advanced you get, you're not going to like hit PRs every single session. Did you feel good and strong throughout the session? Like, did you feel like you were able to give your all through the whole session? You know, maybe at the very end you felt a little fatigued, but it wasn't like, you know, half the workout you weren't able to like give much effort because you were just so drained. So did you feel good and strong throughout the session? Did you have intent behind each of your reps so were you focusing on the tempo that you were supposed to be doing the mind muscle connection actually using the correct muscle to move the load squeezing the muscle controlling that eccentric did you have intent behind each of your reps did you follow your program as outlined without skipping or adding anything Um, i would say adding anything would be the biggest one here i think with skipping something while 99 of the time you're also not going to want to do that i think there is something to be said for for listening to your body in the sense of if you are going into that session and all like midway through you know you just are feeling horrible maybe you back off on sets or maybe you take out one of the accessories but honestly for the most part especially if you have like a coach you should be voicing that kind of stuff to them because it's either like you aren't doing your end on the recovery piece you aren't sleeping well enough you aren't feeling well enough or volume needs to be brought down if you're feeling that way you know through your training sessions or you know it could just be a bad day sometimes I tell clients if you get a poor night of sleep and you feel like crap just push the session back a day and let's actually get a good lift but for the most part did you follow that program as outlined without skipping or adding anything um did you adhere to the rest times given? So, um, and also keep in mind that rest times, you know, can go either way. Shorter rest times can be used some, but for the most part, um, at least with my clients, I'm going to want them to be resting for enough time to give their all in that next set. Um, I would much rather for, for the most part, have a client rest a little bit longer and be able to, to actually perform better in that subsequent set than try to rush into it. Now, there are times though that I very intentionally use short rest, but either way, did you adhere to the given rest time? 
Um, and then outside of that was your recovery and then just other factors outside of training are those being optimized. So like your sleep, your peri-workout nutrition or pre-post workout intra, if you do that overall nutrition, stress management, all of that. Um, so those are different things that you can ask yourself as far as, did you have a good training session? Um, it's not how many calories did I burn? So I could say that until I'm blue in the face, but I need you guys to actually understand it. So it's not about the calories burn. Ask yourself all of those other questions. That's a really good thing that you can talk to your clients about too if you're a coach. Um, question number three, FAQ number three. How much weight should I use in the gym? Um, and this is so dependent. I get this question quite often and it's just so relative to the person. Like, well, I don't know how much weight you should use because I don't know I don't know how strong that you are and I don't know what this weight is going to be for you. I don't know what RPE that's going to be for you or if you can lift that with good form. Like it's so dependent. And so more so what I think that you should do is I think that you should ask yourself different questions. So I actually made an Instagram post about this and that's kind of where I got these bullet points, but I think we can kind of look at this two ways. Okay. So let's say you're using a weight. Let's say you're using this weight. So should you keep this weight or potentially even drop it? So here's some instances where you may want to keep the load as is or even drop the weight. So if form and range of motion are not optimal, that's probably going to be something where, you know, if you can, like obviously improve the form. If it's still like a light load that you're not having to use much effort with, it might be something where you don't necessarily even have to drop the weight yet. You could just really need to work on form of range of motion um, or and range of motion. You may even start with like body weight, but either way, you know, if you need to drop the weight to improve the form and range of motion, definitely do so because what we don't want to do is improve our range of motion through like forcing it with the load we want to actually have that range of motion we don't just want to like you know put a heavy barbell on our back and like make us <laughs> squat all the way you know to the ground if we can't actually do that like that's a recipe for injury but that can be kind of a sign if your form and your range of motion aren't optimal probably not ready to increase load yet may even need to scale it back if you're not feeling the load in the target muscle, you may want to, again, keep or drop it because we really want to be able to have that good mind-muscle connection where we know that we are contracting the right muscle and moving the load with the correct target muscles. Um, if you surpass an RPE before your set was up, so if you have prescribed um, a set of eight reps at an RPE of eight and you do eight reps, but you hit failure, well, that was not an RPE of eight, that was an RPE of 10. So if you had a prescribed RPE of eight, you need to drop the load and do that set with a weight that you're going to hit an RPE of eight at. Um, now, depending on how you, your coach is programming, you know, it could be something where maybe set one and two are RPE of eights, and then maybe set three and four are RPEs of 10. Um, it depends how it's programmed, but either way, you know though that if your RPE is supposed to be a certain thing, you need to use a load to where you're staying in that RPE because RPEs should be programmed for a reason. Um, if you're having to use momentum or compensate with a bunch of other muscles to lift the load, definitely need to drop weight. Um, or if it's something where you can, you know, decrease momentum and actually use the right muscle just with a little more focus, then, you know, you could keep the weight. But most times I see people doing this because it's too heavy. Um, and then also, obviously, if you don't feel safe, like going for a PR by yourself, don't do it. So, and then some, some instances where you need to up the weight, um, 
So if form and range of motion are down, then you know that you're good to kind of start looking at these next things. Now, all of these next things though, that I'm going to mention, if your form and range of motion are not where they need to be, you still don't need to up the weight yet. Those need to be your very primary things first before anything. Again, if you're brand new, you may need to start with range of motion with body weight and then start working on form and then slowly add load from there. I actually find that even intermediate to advanced people sometime, if they've never really focused on specifically form, I see more so with advanced people, but range of motion sometimes too. If they've never focused on it, sometimes I make people who think that they're advanced back all the way down to the barbell. Um, no load on it. And when we really get their form right, it's very, very humbling for them to see like, oh, I can't actually do that much load when I'm doing this correctly. Um, so we can up weight. Once those are down, here's some things else that we could look for. If your last few reps are like this exact same speed as your first, probably a good sign that you're not going heavy enough because um, as we do kind of get closer to that muscular failure, the weight is going to slow down a little bit on that concentric. So if you're just like pumping through the reps and it's easy and it's not like it never slows down, you're probably not actually challenging yourself enough. I see so many people who really, really misjudge what a true failure is. And so their RPE 8, which is supposed to be two sets from failure, is probably actually like an RPE of like five. Um, so you got to really, really learn to get honest with that as well. But if you had more reps in the tank than your prescribed RPE, so if you have, let's go back to that, you're doing a set of eight reps, you had an RPE of eight prescribed, so you're supposed to have two reps left in the tank, and you do it, you get to eight reps, and you kind of set the weight down, and you're like, ooh, I probably could have done like six more, and you guys, you have to be so honest, because it's not, oh, I could have done two more, and then it would have been, yeah, it would have been really hard after two more. No, that means like after two more reps, you are at failure. So an RPE of eight is a very hard set. So if you have more reps in the tank than that prescribed RPE, if you're like, oh, I probably actually could have done like five, then you need to up the load. Um, if it felt easy, just wasn't challenging, up the load. That's a question I get a lot. Like somebody will be like, I don't know when to up the load. I'm like, well, was that how did that like was that easy and they're like I mean yeah I'm like then up the load <laughs> um or sometimes it's just like if you want to go for a new PR I think that's fine sometimes like if you're just like I want to see what I can do on this now please be safe with this you guys like please don't go for a squat PR by yourself things like that bench press PR by yourself um don't do that and then also if it's a move where you feel like you're going to hurt yourself trying to set a PR with it, please don't. Squats could potentially be an example. Deadlifts could be an example. Now, there are safe ways to do it, but yeah, just be careful and be safe with that. But sometimes it is fun to kind of see where you're at with that um, on certain movements. And yeah, so that is question number three. And then question number four should I track my foods cooked or raw? I told you guys these were kind of random questions, but I still get them all the time. So the thing with tracking <laughs> tracking foods cooked or raw is the biggest thing, you guys, is consistency. Because regardless of what you're doing, we are making adjustments based on what you're currently doing. And so long as you're staying consistent, whatever adjustment we make is going to move from whatever baseline we were at. So the biggest thing is consistency, but I still do like to try to get things as accurate as we can um, just to kind of get out variables. But either way, consistency is going to be the biggest thing to get out variables. But here's a couple of other ways that you can kind of look at it. You want to you wanna track things as they are kind of shown 
on the label, for example, but I'm going to get into a couple that are, are more, um, it's just like, obviously for like something like meat, raw meat, you're not just going to like pull out raw chicken each day. Like most people are going to cook it more in bulk. So I'll get to that. But for things like, for example, oatmeal, just cook it because the, on the label, oh, not cook it, sorry, just weigh it, (laughs) weigh it raw. Because on the label, if it says 40 grams of oats in a serving, that's talking about the raw weight. That's not talking about once it's cooked, especially something like oatmeal. That would be a mess trying to figure out how to weigh that cooked because it like changes so much. Um, So like with something like oats, for example, you're just gonna just dump it on the scale raw and that's what you're gonna track and that's what you're gonna weigh. But for something like, for example, meats. So meats are going to shrink by about 25%. So what you can kind of look at most times if you're buying like, um, if you're buying the meat that's not already cooked. Now, if you are buying pre-cooked meats, a lot of times on the label, it actually will have the nutrition facts for it as cooked. Just be sure. Usually it will say, but if you're buying it raw, which most people are, then the label is going to be talking about the nutrition for the raw weight. So if meat shrinks by about 25%, what you're going to do is, so let's say you scan the thing on MyFitnessPal and it goes in as four ounces raw. Okay, you do want to track it as four ounces raw, but obviously let's say that you had prepped it and so it's cooked now, what do you do? So what you can do is you can just do four times 0.75 because it shrinks by about 25%. And so you're just going to weigh out three ounces cooked. Now, if you want to be even more accurate, what you can do, because obviously not all meat is going to shrink by exactly 25%. And I'm sure that different, and when I say meats as like meats, poultry, like any animal products here, um, any like protein sources. And so with that, oh, by the way, egg whites, typically you're going to want to weigh them raw. Super easy to do. Um, But with this, another way that you could do that is if you have like a um, something that you prep a, a certain way every time. So what you can do is you can just take, you can kind of create your own multiplier. So let's say that it was 16 ounces in the whole thing of chicken. So you're going to want to weigh the entire package of chicken raw, or it'll say it on the label, like how many ounces are in the package that you got. Let's say that there's 16 ounces just for ease. And then let's say that you cook it in a crock pot or something. Um, So what you're going to want to do here is you're going to want to take that And once you cook it, you're going to weigh it all again. So let's say that it was 16 and then you do it in a crock pot and then it weighed, let's just say, I don't even know. What would this be? Let's just say, would it be, hmm. Okay, so let's say we have 16 ounces. Let me do my multiplier so I can make this make sense in my head. Okay, that, yeah, that makes a lot more sense. Okay, so let's say that it was 16 ounces and then you weigh it after and it was 13 ounces. So what you're going to do is you're going to do 13 divided by 16. So that was a 0.81 multiplier. 
So now every time that you have that exact same crock pot chicken, you're going to use a 0.81 multiplier instead of the 0.75. So for example, if you did that four ounces that we mentioned earlier, you would do four times 0.81 and you would actually weigh out 3.24. So if you cook that chicken the same way every time, you can just keep a note that that's the multiplier that you're going to use. And then for each kind of protein source that you do, that's kind of how I would do it if you're trying to be super accurate is for each protein source that you make, whatever way you cook it, just have like a notes tab in your phone where you put just, you'll just have to do this tedious step one time. You'll just have to do the weigh it all raw, weigh it all cooked, get a multiplier, and then just make that same meat the same way each time and use that multiplier from your notes. That's what I would do for that. Um, as far as like rice, the I think the easiest way to do this is going to also be, because rice actually will grow when it's cooked, but sometimes depending on how you cook it, it can like, it can double or it can even triple. So I would just kind of do it the same way. I would weigh it all um, raw and then I would weigh it all cooked. I would get the multiplier and I would do it the same way. But again, you're only going to have to do it one time, but just be sure like if you usually cook it in a rice cooker, that's great. Just keep using the same multiplier. But if one day you randomly kind of switch over and you do it a different way, I would get a new multiplier just to be the most accurate. Um, so yeah, that's, that's what I would say there. So hopefully that helps as far as should you track foods cooked or raw. It really depends, but the biggest thing is consistency. Okay, so number five is how do I know if I should reverse diet? So I'm going to go through this relatively quickly here because I do think I'm just going to do a full episode on reverse dieting, but these are just like some different scenarios of people who may want to reverse diet. Um, if your fat loss goal, if you kind of achieved your fat loss goal, let's say you got really great results on your cut and you're happy with it, but your calories are not at a sustainable place where you feel like you can really eat those consistently to maintain the results that you got. That's a really good scenario where you would want to reverse diet and get your food up a little bit. Um, after any kind of like extreme diet, whether that be, you know, contest prep, which I don't coach anybody who does contest prep, but sometimes it's just somebody who maybe, maybe you're coming out of like an eating disorder or something, but, and you really, really need to truly recover your body hormones and like all of that, a reverse diet could be helpful. But with this reverse diet, rather than it being more of like a slow, steady increase, a lot of times in these scenarios, we're going to need a pretty big initial increase because in these scenarios, we do need to put on some body fat, um, like right up front before we can like slow down the, the increases. So that could potentially be one. If your calories are unsustainably low in general, even if you're not to your goal. So even if you still have body fat to lose, if you're at an unsustainable intake, you need to think long-term and you need to get your calories up and get yourself to a place where you can actually create a sustainable deficit to actually stick to and see results on. Um, if you just literally want to, if you're just kind of chilling and you're like, you know, a little more food would be nice for some flexibility for my performance, for how I feel, because food is good. And, you know, obviously too, if you're like, you know, I might want to cut down the road and it would be cool to already be like in a good place when I do decide, you could do it just for that. Um, if you wanted to shift your focus primarily to muscle building, that could be another good scenario. Um, but that's really kind of covers it. But I think that one other thing people are like, well, I don't know if my calories are, you know, unsustainable or too low. And as far as unsustainable, I mean, can you stick to them or do you keep binging? Are you able to actually adhere to them? 
Um, and you know, how do you feel all the time? How is your libido? How is your energy? How is your digestion? How's your performance? How's your recovery? All of these things like that goes into sustainability too. Not just like, can you suffer because, (laughs) because you want to lose the fat? Like there's a lot that goes into sustainability. And at some point you're going to not be able to just suffer through super low calories anymore. So I will say the low calories relative to the person. So there's not just like a number that I can give, but one really good way to look at this is if you do just like an online calculator to get your predicted maintenance, not your BMR, your TDEE, your actual predicted maintenance. Um, If you do a calculator online to get that, now each calculation, each equation is a little bit different, but either way, you're going to get a general range. And if your calorie intake relative to that is super low, you definitely probably need a reverse diet Um, because while those aren't going to show obviously your current maintenance, they can show around what it probably quote unquote should be. Even though again, each calculation is going to give you a little something different. And there's always like, there's always a variation and there's always different scenarios or different contexts with different people. But regardless, it's going to give you a good general outline um, or at least a good general range of where your calories or what you should be maintaining your weight on. And so if yours are quite a bit lower than that, it's probably a good sign like, hey, let's actually get my food a little closer to match that before I try to like go into any kind of diet phase here. Um, So those are some great scenarios as far as how to know if you should reverse diet. Um, And before we get into these next five questions, I did just want to um, pop in here and let you guys know that your ratings and reviews are always greatly, greatly appreciated. So if you're getting value out of this episode, I would greatly, greatly appreciate if you just like pause it, scroll down, hit the five star button. If you feel called to leave an actual review, I would greatly appreciate that as well. But that really does help me. It helps me want to keep pumping out really good valuable content helps the podcast grow another way if you do want to support that you can always help out is if you screenshot share the podcast episode on instagram and tag me at sydney tallet that always helps a lot as well and i genuinely really 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 appreciate anybody who has taken the time to do any of those things so just wanted to throw that in there and now we can get back to the episode okay so number six doesn't matter if i eat carbs before bed. Okay, so answer here is no, because the totals are what really matters, you guys. So if you have, let's just say, for whatever goal you had, let's say that your targets were 2,000 calories and 225 carbs. If you have the last 50 grams of your carbs before bed, or at 5 p.m., it does not matter. It's the total for the day that matters. And really, we could look at it as, you know, total across the week. But when I'm talking about this, it's the total for the day that matters. And our totals for the days are going to, therefore, add up to the totals across the week. So either way, that's what really matters here. And there's always going to be caveats to everything. So I did just want to throw in a couple here. Um, So for example, if you are somebody, let's say that you're in a deficit, let's say that your calories are at 1700 um, or even let's say that they're at like 1600 and your carbs are getting a little bit lower and you just really like that night snack. So you keep hoarding all of your carbs for bedtime and you're not having hardly any carbs pre and post workout. Well, in that scenario, you're really just making your training suffer, your recovery suffer. And training is a really big piece of maintaining that muscle 
during a fat loss phase, which is what we want. So in that scenario, it's not that the carbs before bed are quote unquote bad or they're going to like make you put on fat. It's more so, well, if you're hoarding all of your carbs for night and taking away from your performance and recovery in that peri-workout nutrition window, that's probably not the best idea. Another thing to think about or think about, look at is digestion. Um, So does that digestion or does that higher carb meal before bed negatively impact your digestion? Do you potentially need to either look at, maybe you need to look at what kind of carb are you having? Um, Like, is it a slower digesting or a quicker digesting? Or maybe you need to look at how close to bed, like, do you need to give it a little time to digest before you try to go to bed? Or can you just like eat it and then go to bed? Also, you could look at sleep. Um, I know for me personally, having some carbs before bed really helps my sleep, Um, but you have to kind of look at what do you do best with? Have you noticed that when you eat carbs before bed, it keeps you awake or does it help you sleep? It's always helped me, Um, but that's another thing to look at, the digestion and that sleep factor and then the peri-workout nutrition and just like mentality in general. Like, I just don't think that hoarding, you know, 200 grams of carbs for your night snack just so you can put together this huge creation. I don't think that's necessarily the best thing mentally food wise. Um, I think that macros is great for allowing flexibility and fitting fun things, but I do think sometimes people take it too far. And I just think it almost turns into like this binge type of mindset, which I don't love. I don't think it creates any like sustainable habits for like one day when you don't track. So yeah, that's, those are just like some caveats, but are carbs before bed bad? Absolutely not. I eat carbs before bed every single night. Like I said, it helps me sleep personally. I do just make sure that, especially if I'm like going into a cutting phase, usually I'll have most of my carbs pre-workout, post-workout, before bed. My other meals are probably going to be a little bit lower carb depending on how low I am at the time. Um, But it's not because carbs make you fat before bed. It's simply from that um, optimizing performance and recovery and sleep and digestion and all of that. So Okay, number seven is going to be how do I hit my protein goal? Um, So many people, so many people struggle with hitting their protein goal. And before I get into that, I did just want to give a general recommendation as far as how much protein you should be eating. Um, For the most part, I'm going to be looking at about 0.8 to 1.2 grams per pound here um, for protein. And this is going to be per pound lean body weight um, or lean body mass, whatever you want to to say. So that's what we're looking at there. And I will say you're going to want to be on the higher range of that if you are um, in a deficit, um, if you are just like a leaner individual. So the leaner you are, the higher on the range you're going to be. If you're in a deficit, the higher on the range you're going to be and the older that you are actually the higher on the the range that you're going to be. So 0.8 to 1.2 there. And then I just wanted to throw that in just for so that I didn't just say, how do I hit my protein goal? And if anybody was like, well, what should my protein goal be? That's a really good place to start. But as far as how to hit it, it is genuinely so simple to hit your protein goal if you just plan ahead. So that's my first thing is plan ahead. Let's say that you have a goal of 130 grams of protein. All we need to do now, we need to plan ahead for it. So let's start with kind of spacing it out throughout the day. So I will say I do like people to get at least like 30 grams of protein in a meal for the most part. The only time I really like a protein serving to be less than 30 is if it's like a whey protein isolate. Sometimes we can get away with like 20 and still get that same um, muscle protein synthesis response or that, that leucine threshold that we need. But 
I would say here with 130, let's just assume, let's assume this person eats um, four meals a day. Uh, so let's just say they eat four times a day. 130 divided by four. So that is 32.5 or let's round it to 33 grams of protein four times a day. And obviously there's, you know, there's other ways that you could look at this. You could also do, let's say this person has a 20 gram protein shake post-workout and then they have four other meals. Well, then we'd be looking at like 27.5-ish grams of protein at, at those other meals. So either way we look at it, but I think for ease of, of this scenario that I want to go through, let's just say this person eats four times a day. Um, although I will say I do like to see five protein servings a day sometimes. I like four to six is like a good range, but I, I like five. Um, for a lot of people, I find that that works best. So let's, let's go back to five. Um, sorry. So we'll go 130 and let's say they have that 20 gram of protein shake. So that one's easy. You buy away protein isolate, you drink it post-workout, or if it's like a non-training day, you could still drink it. And that gets rid of 20. So then we have four different servings of like 27.5 ish protein. So in this scenario, now what we have to do is we just need to plan our meals to where we have a protein source in each one and we need to literally adjust the amount until we hit that around 27.5 or whatever 28 grams of protein at that meal so i think a big thing though that people do is they even if they do plan out their day they do that and then they don't actually prep the foods that they plan so that's a huge piece of it you can't plan your day but not go by and prep the foods. So once you pre-track your day, you plan it out, you need to go buy the sources that you tracked and you need to prep them or else you're not going to stick to it. And adherence and consistency is the biggest thing. So that's what I would say there. And I mean, as far as protein sources, it, it kind of depends. I mean, what do, you, what do you want at the meal? You know, we could do, maybe if it's breakfast, maybe you're doing egg, egg, white scramble. Um, maybe if it's like a lunch or dinner, maybe we're having some fish, maybe we're having some ground turkey, lean ground beef, chicken, um, like there's so many different options. And then obviously vegans, vegetarians, you know, we may be looking at some tempeh, tofu, um, some things like that as well, which we also need to be accounting for like carbs and things like that in the, the vegan vegetarian sources. But either way we need to be, I mean, that, that's really what it comes down to. And then also, um, Obviously, if you needed to use another supplement, you could. I really like a whey protein isolate for most people, especially like in the post-workout setting. But if you needed another one, I do like to say like max two probably for your protein sources. Get the rest from like whole food sources. But, you know, you could always utilize like the like the vegan power pro from first form. It's bomb and oatmeal. It's great for like little recipes. If you like really need something sweet at night, you can make something like that. Um so yeah, in that scenario, I mean, for that person, let's say that they had 20 grams from the way I slit. And then let's say with, with something else, they had a protein powder for that other serving. So now this person just needs three different meals that have, um, that have the 28 ish grams of protein from, from different animal sources. Or again, if you're vegan vegetarian, you can use those sources, but it's really as simple as that, you guys. So hopefully that helped. I feel like I didn't miss anything. Um, I just think that people don't really think about, oh, maybe I should just plan ahead, then go buy it and then meal prep it. And then I'll be able to hit it. Um, really pretty simple. Okay. And then also though, if you're not used to hitting that protein, you might just want to like work up to it though, by the way. 
And then, okay, number eight, should I track my steps? So as far as tracking steps, I think that it can be super, super helpful. Um, And actually, step trackers are relatively accurate. They're not good at determining calories burned, but they are pretty good at determining steps. And I think it can just be helpful to have a baseline. I don't think that it's absolutely necessary. I don't think that you have to have it, but I have really loved kind of the movement towards step trackers just from a coaching perspective. It really helps me just kind of keep tabs on my clients, um, just the activity levels throughout the day. And it's really helpful. Like if you do go into, for example, a deficit to be able to maintain your activity levels. Cause if you don't have that to look at, sometimes your step count may drop by, you know, um, 25 to 50% without you even realizing it. So one thing that can be really helpful within a fat loss phase is to be able to see like, okay, I need to maintain these, these steps here because if we try to create, for example, a deficit just with food to start, but your steps all of a sudden drop crazy too, and then you don't lose anything. You're like, wait, but I brought my calories down. Why isn't this working? Well, if we would have been able to see steps, we could have made sure that we kept those steady too. I think it's also helpful, even if you're not dieting, and just to kind of keep tabs, number one, if you are trying to like build muscle, we sometimes, sometimes with clients I've seen like, you are probably getting way too many right now. Now, I do think, you know, it depends on the person. Some people, it's more like hard gainers that I worry more about, more about getting too much activity outside of their um, training, but it can still be really helpful to just kind of keep tabs on where we're averaging and be able to see that because it's really, it's just an easy place to adjust things from. Cause like if we have a baseline of steps, we can adjust up or down as we need to. And it's a lot easier than in my opinion, just saying, oh, do this on the, you know, on the treadmill because well, this person could be doing that on the treadmill, but what if outside of that in a diet, they have still, you know, aren't moving near as much as what they used to and we aren't sure what's going on. Well, if we had the step tracker, we would see, oh, even though we have this cardio and you're still less than you used to be on steps. So I think it can be really helpful. It's just like a baseline tool. I don't think that everybody needs to be hitting 10K steps. I think that that's such a random number. I think it's a really good number for some people, but I don't think it's feasible for everybody. Um, I think it depends on your job and what is actually maintainable for you and your lifestyle. I think everybody should put in some effort to get movement. And I think, you know, if you have a super sedentary job, you should probably have some kind of movement throughout the day, like a, a walk or something. But I don't think that you need to just go walk for hours to try to hit 10K steps. Um, not that it would take like hours, but either way. I think 10K is like such a, I guess it's just a easy number, but I don't think that everybody has to be doing that. And especially if you have like a super sedentary job, like what if you wanted to go into a fat loss phase down the road and let's say that you were already forcing yourself to hit 10K, well then what are you going to do? I mean, obviously you have the food to move, but what if you ever did want to add some more activity? Then, you know, if the 10K was already hard for you to get, it's going to be even harder to get even higher. Whereas if you just kind of gave yourself a more moderate step goal to hit like 7K, you would have actually a little more room to work in something like a fat loss phase. So that is my long-winded answer for that. Number nine is, do you have to track macros to lose fat? And the answer is you do not have to, but I want to ask you guys this question. Do you have to track expenses to save money? No, you don't have to. Can you save money without actually tracking your income and expenses? Of course, but is that going to be the best way to reach a target savings goal 
in a smart manner by X time? Mm, probably not. It's probably going to be best if we're tracking, you know, what we're making and, and what we're buying. So that's kind of how I like to look at macros. Do you have to? No. Is it more helpful? I think so. And more often than not, what I see is like too with people who do try to lose lose fat without tracking is I feel like they almost just go into, okay, no carbs, let's do more cardio, let's eat less. And I think it can almost turn into something where they just slash their calories way too low too fast. Just because when you get in that diet mindset, it can be really easy to start thinking that way even though it's not the way that you should be thinking, but it's still really easy to. And so I find that with tracking, it can really help you make sure that you're not like actually doing too, like going to too many extremes. Um, But do you have to? No, what you could try to do is you could just kind of, I mean, there's a lot of different ways and I I don't really want to go into that in this episode, but I mean, it could be um, portion sizes, which in my opinion is even more stressful. Like I'd rather just track it and know than try to portion things out with my palms and I'd just be like questioning everything but maybe that's just me but you could try like a portion size approach um you could try like a hunger cue approach but hunger cues just differ so much with like stress and there's so many things that go into that but portions can work um I don't I don't love it as much um but it can work uh so yes can you yes do I think it's the most optimal way no I don't kind of going back to that tracking expenses thing. And I think you have to realize that fat loss is a very, um, it should not be what we're always striving for. We shouldn't just be in deficits forever. So how I like to look at it is if I'm going to freaking go into a deficit, I'm going to get the most out of it. I'm going to be as accurate as I can. I'm going to get the results in that smart, safe way. And then I'm going to come out of that deficit. And then I can be more intuitive after that. But I think like if you have that set goal, In my opinion, just track for it. But can you lose fat without tracking? Yes, you can. Um, But a lot of times I will say if you try that, you're either going to crash it too hard or you're not going to see results because it's pretty hard to cognitively, cognitively restrain as it is, especially if you're not actually keeping track with it, because it's a lot easier to just be like, oh yeah, I'll just have like a little bite of that. Or yeah, I'll just like have this extra snack today. Whereas if you're tracking, you're like, oh no, can't do that. So yeah, I think that accountability is huge too. All right. Last question for this episode is, should I only eat as much as I burn during my workout in a day? The reason I put this here is because I made a YouTube video one time and I got this question in the comments actually quite a bit. And so I figured I would put it in here in case anybody thought this. So let's say that your watch says that you burn 500 calories in your little orange theory workout, even though again, they're not that accurate. I think I've said that like 10 times in this episode, but let's say that it says that you burn 500 calories. Okay, so should you only eat 500 calories to maintain your weight? No, 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 you guys. Going back to the very beginning, that 500 calories, which is probably wrong, even if it's right, doesn't really matter. Um, There's a lot more that goes into fat loss than just burning 500 calories in a workout. Um, Either way, so let's go back up to that total daily energy expenditure. That quote unquote 500 calories is the physical activity part. We still have calories burned from your thermic effect of food, your non-exercise activity thermogenesis, and your BMR. And your BMR makes makes a nice chunk of your calorie burn to just maintain you as a being in your vital processes. So you still have three other factors that your body is burning calories for in the day. It's not just the 
calories that you burn in the workout. So yeah, I've, I've had that question. It kind of scared me. A girl, I think she commented something like, um, you know, I, my watch says I burn 500 something calories in this class. Does that mean that I need to only try to eat that much to maintain my weight? And I was like, no, no, please don't do that. Um, that would just not be good. So that is number 10. I hope that you guys enjoyed this episode. I know it was really long, but I hope you got some value out of it. Maybe you had to listen to it in two parts. That is okay. But thank you so much for listening. Again, if you want to share it, that'd be great. If you want to leave a review, that'd be great. And yeah, that's the episode. I hope that you enjoyed it and got some value out of it. And I will talk to you guys in the next one.